Gospels to Job chapter 29. This is the word of God for your edification. Job further continued his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me when his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness, just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, when my steps were bathed with cream, and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. When I went out to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid, and the aged arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, then it blessed me. When the eye saw, then it approved me, because I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless, and the one who had no helper. The blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. Then I said, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters, and the dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is fresh within me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again, and my speech settled on them as dew. They waited for me as for the rain. They opened their mouth wide as for the spring rain. If I mocked at them, they did not believe it, and the light of my countenance they did not cast down. I chose the way for them and sat as chief. So I dwelt as a king in the army, as one who comforts mourners. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this portion of your holy word. It is our bread of life. It is for our edification. I pray as we uh, meditate upon it that our hearts would be stirred within us to embrace it, to embrace your pattern for life. I pray, Father, that you would bless this congregation and bless and anoint me as I preach. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Warren Carr was... um, a pastor in a church in North Carolina, and uh, one time he wanted to just get a good feel for what some of the expectations that uh, members of his church had for his ministry, and so he made out a survey that included all of the different things that a pastor engages in, had them listed out, and asked them how many hours a week he thought that that the pastor should ideally spend in, in ministry, and when he got them back and tabulated them, he uh, was kind of shocked to find that the average amount of time that was expected of him was uh, 82 hours a week. And one of the surveys had 200 hours. That's 32 hours more than exists in a week, okay? And so this pastor, if he was to live in terms of the expectations of that family, would never be able to satisfy them. And uh, uh, he would have given up and been discouraged. And there's been many... um, Uh, Journal articles I've read down through the years uh, uh, that describe pastors who have left the pulpit because they just feel so discouraged. In fact, I think it's in the range of uh, 3,000 
uh, pastors a month that uh, leave pulpits in, in, in America. There's others that replace, but uh, it's been a real burnout for them. Now, the reason I bring this up is not because I'm going to be talking about pastors. I'm not. But because the same tug of war of diverse and sometimes conflicting uh, expectations are placed upon you dads. And uh, many dads are very, very discouraged because they feel that they cannot live up to the expectations that everybody places upon them. You've got to be a superman. And uh, if you do everything that some of the books and the seminars say that you as men need to do, you wouldn't have enough hours in the week to be able to accomplish them. You are pastors of your congregations, of your families if you're married. Uh, but um, I want to deal with this, this whole area. What is it in our lives that we need to be doing as men? What are things that are essentials? What are things that are non-essentials? And even as I preach this sermon, I don't want you guys to feel guilty. I want you to be looking at this and saying, is this biblically realistic? Uh, the expectations my family put upon me, the expectations that the pastor puts upon me, because if you're living in terms of God's expectations, you'll be able to say no to the expectations of others and still feel okay about yourself. Um, when I preached through the book of Joshua, oh, this was back in 99 or 2000, somewhere around there, I gave the story of the professor and the jar, and you may remember that. Uh, one time he took out a mason jar and he put it on the table and he brought out a bucket of rocks, and while he was talking to them and lecturing, he was putting rocks into this mason jar, and when he couldn't fit any more rocks in, he stopped and he said, well, does that mason jar look like it's full? And, you know, several people nodded yes, and uh, several shook their heads no. And then he reached out and he got uh, another jar of gravel, and he poured that in, was shaking it until he couldn't fit any more gravel in, and he asked him, is this jar full? Well, everybody was shaking their heads at that point. And he pulled out some sand and he poured that in and shook it down. And he asked if the jar was full now. And there were a couple of people who were saying, yeah, it's full now. And he pulled out some water and he poured the water in until it was brimming uh, to the top as well. And then he said, what's the moral of this illustration that I have just given to you? And uh, one of the students in the class raised his hand and he said, well, it means that uh, no matter how full your schedule is, there's always room for one more thing. And the professor said, no, no, it's the very opposite of what I'm trying to get across. What I want to get across to you this uh, morning, he said, is that if you don't put the big rocks in first, you'll never get them in. And I thought, you know, that's a, that's a very good illustration. If you don't get the big rocks in first, you will never get them in. And the big rocks represent the essentials of our church, the essentials of our, of our um, family, what things God expects have to absolutely have to be present there. We applied it to the church. There were things that uh, needed to be present that many times because of busyness get pushed out. All of the other things that crowd into the way and we said, look, we need to realign things. We need to look at what are the important things for our church to function. And everything else can be peripheral. And if there's room, we can add those things in. But let's get down to the basics. And that's what I want to look at today. What are the basics for manhood? What are the things that God expects in your life? And if you turn with me to Job chapter 1, before we get to some of those basics, I want to uh, show you that Job really was a model uh, man, he was a model husband, he was a model father, uh, one that we could imitate. Job 1, verse 1. Now, this is God's opinion, okay? This is an inspired book. God says, 
There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. He was a blameless and an upright man. Now, later on in the book, we discover he has sin inside, but outwardly. He conformed his life to God's law so that he could be described as blameless and upright. He was a man's man. He was a model that God is setting before us that we need to imitate. Now, he's described as a financial success in verse 3, a family man in verse 5, a spiritual man in the same verse. And then if you look at verse 8, God repeats his opinion that Job is somebody we ought to imitate. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And Job chapter 29 is Job's remembrance of these days when things were going well and everything was ideal. Uh, he was looking back to the time when God described him as being blameless and without fault. And so we're going to look at seven essentials. There's others, obviously, that uh, we could look at to imitate. But these are seven essentials from his life. And right off the bat, you can correct your notes. You can cross out worshiper. I mean, there was worship that was involved. But I thought, well, worship tends to be thought of in our minds not as something throughout the week, but as something that we do in devotions or something that we do in church. So just cross out worshiper and put a friend, okay? He was a friend of God because it's this closeness to God that I, I, I want to get at and that affects all of the other points. Job 29, verses 2 through 5. He says, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness, just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, etc. I want to focus on that phrase in verse 4 when he says, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent. Let me give you some other translations of that phrase. One translation has, when God's intimate friendship blessed my tent. Another says, when God was my home's familiar guest. Now, there has when the intimacy of God was over my tent. It doesn't matter how you translate that. You cannot get away from the idea. Job was a friend of God. Uh, he had learned to develop a relationship with God. And uh, this point really does affect what kind of a man you are, what kind of a husband, and what kind of a father you will be. And uh, we all have our excuses as to why we don't develop our time with God uh, because you know, we feel that we are so busy. Uh, our hours at work uh, uh, take away our ability to do that. The children chew up so much time. But one of the things I want you to realize is that Job was an enormously busy person. He had enormous wealth. Anytime you have wealth, you get busier and busier trying to manage the wealth. Uh, he had a large family, and uh, he had uh, many responsibilities as a magistrate and so I don't want you to be thinking about these points as being something that you add into your life, but rather this friendship of God is something that pervaded absolutely everything that he did. Um, it, was, um, it, it was what we've spoken of in the past as practicing the presence of the Lord, living continually, as Calvin said, quorum Deo, in the presence of God. So it's not something you add. It's an attitude. It's a, it's a perspective that needs to rule every moment of, of your day. 
And verse 2, Job says, As in the days when God watched over me, watched over me, as a sense, God's there. He's, he's aware, he's realizing God's smile of approval or his, his frown of disapproval on the things that are going on. He was walking before the face of God. Verse 3, when he felt in the dark, unsure what to do, well, he looked to the Lord. When his lamp shone upon my head, when my, by his light I walked through the darkness. And so worship might give the idea, you know, of a division between life and devotions. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a sense of, of God's presence in absolutely everything that we do. And when you have that, it transforms the way you look at the rest of life. And we're going to be seeing how this really impacts the other, uh, the other points. Okay, second point. Not only was Job a friend of God, he also sought to bring others close to the Lord. He was a priest to his family. And he took that priesthood very seriously. Again, if you look at uh, Job chapter 1 and uh, verse 5, you see an example of his uh, priesthood being manifested. It says, So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. And as you read through the book, you discover he prayed for his children when they were absent. He prayed for his children when they were present. He, he was very involved in his children's lives and in his wife's life. If you look at uh, verse 5 of chapter 29, it says, When the Almighty was yet with me, when, when my children were around me, the two were connected. It wasn't just a situation where he'd get away from the kids so that he could spend time with God. No, he sensed God's presence, whether he was in devotions or whether he was working with his children. He was a priest to his family. He represented God to his family. And uh, many fathers leave the devotions and leave the work of priesthood to their wives. They say, I'm too busy. So the wife does all of the spiritual ministry in the children's lives. And I would say, we ought not to do that. There is a difference. Obviously, I value my wife's uh, ministry in my children's lives. She has done an enormous amount in drawing the hearts of our children to the Lord. But there is no replacement for the father being a priest in his family. There is no replacement for that. And I've had times where I have let this slip because I have gotten so busy and then I realize, no, if I've gotten so, so busy, I'm never going to get that rock in. I've got to displace something. I've got to throw out some of the gravel and some of the sand that's gotten into the jar of my life and I've got to put that rock back in because if I am not a priest to my children and to my wife, then I am not doing what God has called me to do. Uh, and by the way, if you achieve every other goal that you have set in your life, but you lose your children, you're not multiplying yourself. They're the only way we can multiply our dominion generation after generation is by having children and making sure we're passing on a heritage uh, through our children. And so it really is very important. And um, uh, this is happening all across America uh, where... Uh, Fathers have completely bailed out. Even in homeschooling circles, fathers have bailed out on their role as priests of the family. It's something that the women have pretty much taken over. 
Uh, if, if you're new to the church, let you know that probably this fall or this winter we'll be starting up again the men's discipleship where we work through different areas of leadership and encourage you to be a part of that. But throughout this, this place, this chapter here, we see his priesthood being evidence. So my question to you is this. Are you priests in your family? And if you're single, don't space this off. You need to be preparing to be priests, right? And uh, priesthood isn't just to the family. Priesthood is representing the Lord to other people as well. Uh, we can value tremendously the work that our wives do, but there is no replacement for the man. In fact, the last words in the Old Testament in Malachi are uh, something to the effect of God saying that he will turn uh, through John the Baptist, through Elijah, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children of the children to the fathers, lest he come and strike the earth with a curse. That's how seriously God considers this role of the man as the priest of the family. We cannot relinquish that role. It's something very important. Okay, the, it has to be a friend, needs to be a priest. Third word is steward. God had entrusted Job with an enormous amount of wealth because Job had a heart that God could trust. It was a steward's heart. Another way of saying this is he was not materialistic. In chapter 1, verse 3, he was said to be the richest man in all of the East. So he must have had enormous wealth. But if you look at chapter 29 and verse 6, he uses poetic language to describe this wealth. When my steps were bathed with cream... And the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. You know, in modern lingo, he was filthy rich. And uh, yet God had no problem with that whatsoever because he was handling this wealth uh, to God's glory. God delights in entrusting us with provisions and more provisions when we are faithful with the provisions he has already given to us. But the scripture says that the steward who had but was unfaithful with what he had, he took away even what he did have, even though he was given uh, less than the person with, uh, with ten talents. And so it was not the be-all and the end-all for Job. It was a tool. And I want you to look especially at chapter 31. Chapter 31, verses 24 through 29. If I have made gold my hope, or said to find gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much... And then he goes on to talk about another form of idolatry in verses 26 through 27. But look at his conclusion in verse 28. This also would be iniquity deserving of judgment, for I would have denied God who is above. He is saying that if he put his confidence and his trust in gold, he would be denying God every bit as much as the other form of idolatry in verses 26 through 27. Now, we abhor the second form of idolatry, and we embrace the first form of idolatry, but materialism is idolatry, pure and simple, and we need to recognize it as being idolatry. Uh, it, it must not be something that, that, that grips our hearts. Um, when Job lost everything, his wife was very discouraged, and she told him to curse God and die. Let's just get it over with. We can't live if we're going to lose everything. But Job refused. In chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground. So we're not talking about stoicism here. He had grief. And when things are taken away from us, there's a legitimate grief. When there are people that are taken away from us, there's a legitimate grief. But the reason I say that materialism had not gripped his heart is because he gladly relinquished it to the Lord. Well, 
gladly maybe is a too strong of a word, but he was willingly relinquishing it to the Lord. He fell to the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the testimony of a steward. It's saying, Lord, if you want me poor and you want to take away everything, and you would be better served in your kingdom, I, I will receive it. If you want to give me more wealth, uh, I want to use everything that I have in a way that will build a dynasty through my children uh, to many generations, that will be able to influence and affect society in a way that glorifies you, but I want to be a steward. That needs to be our prayer. <clears throat> so the question this morning is, are you stewards of what God has given to you? I think, again, many times uh, people... Uh, uh, deny their stewardship uh, in one area in order to uh, achieve it in another. We need to be balanced in our Christian lives. And I am not saying that uh, there will not be time that we will, times that we will be away from uh, our families, um, you know, when we're off to war, uh, when we're on a boat, you know, uh, doing trading and things like that. There's times that we're away. Uh, I'm not saying that we should not work diligently for our, uh, for our wealth. The scripture says he who does not provide for his own is worse than an unbeliever. But what I am saying is we need to make sure that when we are passing on a heritage financially to our children and our children's children, which, by the way, 2 Corinthians commands us to do, to lay up for our children. He says the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. But when we're doing that, we need to make sure at the same time we're preparing those children to be able to handle those, those, that well so that it's not a curse to them. We need to be passing on stewardship values. We need to be passing on to our children everything that it takes uh, to be able to uh, uh, take dominion with these things to God's glory. And we're not stewards until we can say with Job, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. By the way, the reason, the only reason that Jesus made that rich young ruler uh, give away all of his wealth is because that wealth had become an idol to him. He's in the business of destroying idols. It had come between him and the Lord Jesus Christ, and he made him give it all away. Now, if that person came to Christ and he gave it all away, I'm sure the Lord could entrust right back into that person's life the same amount of wealth just like he did with Job because here's a person who's shown. He's got his... Take it. You can take it. It's yours to take. It's yours to give. And I'm going to be faithful with little. I will be faithful with much. And so that's the only reason why uh, Jesus uh, made that rich young steward, uh, rich young ruler, uh, give that, that money away. A fourth word that should characterize every father and husband and every single man in this congregation is that we must be judges or justice seekers. Uh, Job was a judge under God. He had learned to seek justice. Now, it was not to the exclusion of mercy any more than women majoring on mercy is to the exclusion of justice. I think the scripture does portray women as majoring on mercy and men as majoring on, on, on justice, but there really does need to be a balance uh, in both lives. And I want to look, first of all, at the issue of justice. One of the reasons why uh, John Wayne used to be popular and uh, Chuck and Stol uh, you know, Stallone, Stallone, yes, yeah, Stallone and Eastwood and Norris and Schwarzenegger and Mel Gibson and uh, uh, some of these things, why they were so popular is I think despite how much 
Men have been uh, feminized and wimpified. They cannot get away from something God has put within our manhood, and that is a, a thirst for justice, a thirst to see the good guys winning, right? Uh, a thirst to see uh, the, 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 the evil being put down. And uh, my wife, uh, you know, they, they put up with watching movies with uh, us, us guys, and it tends to dominate, but every once in a while we try to watch a, you know, girly movie. But they don't enjoy those kinds of movies quite as much as us boys do. And uh, I think there's a reason. Uh, God has placed it within our, our, our chest that we want to be a champion of justice. And so if you'll look at verses 14 through 17 of chapter 29, we'll look at some of the different features of this justice that was in his life. Justice was very, very important to him. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from, from his teeth. Uh, there's three qualifiers, though, that I want to give to you that relate to this justice. And sometimes the movies out there fail on these three points. Uh, and so when we're looking to justice, don't look to the world for a model. I want you to look to the Scripture. And the first one's in verse 16. Um, he says, I searched out the case that I did not know. I searched out the case that I did not know. Uh, Job wanted to be fair. He did not jump to conclusions and belt the first kid that came along because he was so frustrated with what was going on in the family. No, he investigated. He looked. Uh, he evaluated both sides of the story, and he didn't paddle them until he knew for sure that they did it. Someone gave me a quote that I thought was very good. It says, it's no use for a husband to put his foot down if he doesn't have a leg to stand on. Okay, there's no justice in that whatsoever. And I remember growing up in boarding school that there was um, uh, a dorm parent that had given me a thrashing that I didn't deserve. I hadn't even done it, and I protested I hadn't. I never protested my spankings, which I got almost daily there, <laughs> if I was guilty. But this one, you know, I hadn't even done it. And uh, shortly thereafter, he found someone who had actually done it. They owned up to it. And, uh, you know, I can live with with, uh, you know, an injustice like that. But what ma made me feel bad was he came back and rather than saying, you know, I was wrong, I, I shouldn't have done that, please forgive me, instead he said, oh, well, you deserved it anyway. I know you must have done some things that deserved that spanking. And I knew he didn't have the goods on me, okay? There wasn't anything that he had. And I knew there, he was right. There were plenty of times he hadn't caught me that I could have gotten a licking. But he didn't have a just cause in that particular spanking, and it diminished him in my eyes in terms of his being a justice seeker. And I think we need to be, be careful on this, uh, this whole area. Uh, do not let your thirst for justice find expression without careful examination, whether it's involving a spanking or whether it's involved criticizing a politician uh, before the family. Make sure that you have your facts together when you're criticizing this politician, that you're not being unjust uh, in, in your criticism. On the other hand, it's important that we not just ignore uh, evil that's uh, uh, being done out there uh, by the government uh, either because our, 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 our children will see what degree of justice uh, is, is in our heart. 
Now, some people do get discouraged because they know they've blown it many times in the past. You can't do anything about the past other than asking forgiveness of your wife, of your children, of people that perhaps you have hurt and say, I want to be a person who seeks for justice. I want to be a person who searches out the case that I do not know and don't take action when I, I, I do not know. Now, a second qualifier is that when he found injustice, he was... You know, you watched out because he was not—he uh, was not mild in the way in which he dealt with the justice. He was fair, but he didn't just let things go by. Verse 17 uh, shows that it was true, even in terms of his being a civil magistrate. It says, "I broke the fangs of the wicked." Now, he was a political judge, and he rejoiced in justice. And this is something that makes many evangelicals squirm and feel a little bit uncomfortable because it just sounds a little bit too harsh. And so when they look at a verse like in verse 17, they'll just say, oh, well, Job, you know, it's just another one of his sins, and we don't need to look at that. So I want you to turn with me to Psalm 58, where the same language is commanded by God to be upon our lips as well. <clears throat> and by the way, this is a war song. There are many people who in Omaha I have heard say that war psalms in the Old Testament are sub-Christian. They are things that we ought not to follow. And in criticizing those war psalms and saying that they are showing lack of sanctification, some people use harsher words than that, they are criticizing the Lord Jesus Christ himself because Jesus took most of those war psalms upon his lips. It's an interesting thing. Look at the quotes of Jesus and the apostles, and most of those war psalms are, are um, uh, what, what's it called, where you approve of them? Um, not authenticated, but whatever the word might be, they take them on their lips, and we ought to take them on our lips as well. And so Psalm 58, it's a psalm of David, a man after God's own heart. Take a look at verse 6. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. It's the same kind of language that Job was using. Look at verses 10 through 11. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He doesn't say wicked people. He says the righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. I want you to see the connection that he gives there between seeing earthly justice being meted out and people having a sense of security in the Lord God himself. When you guys are not seekers of justice in your family, it affects your children's view of God. When they do not see justice in civil society, it affects their view of God. He says there very clearly, it's so that, so that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous, surely he is God who judges in the earth. Do you rejoice as the psalmist did when evil men get their just deserts? We should, we should. And I believe part of the reason why many men do not enjoy that kind of language is that masculinity has been stolen from the church. Uh, I went to a, a, a seminar a number of years ago at Grace College of the Bible by Howard Hendricks, and he addressed this problem. He didn't realize the degree to which uh, his own dispensational school was a major contributor to the problem. But he rightly said, the church has become a bunch of mild-mannered people teaching other mild-mannered people how to become more mild-mannered. And I think he's right. That is a major problem in the church in America. Another example, there's a movement in the church today to do away with all violence on TV. 
And Don Wildman is a wonderful man. He's done a lot of tremendous stuff in terms of trying to uh, uh, promote morality in America. But I think his ratings on advertisers many times are skewed because he does not make a distinction between two different kinds of violence that you will find out there. Violence that is gratuitous is wrong. If you enjoy violence that's not for the cause of justice, uh, you know, it's, it's sick to just enjoy violence all by itself. And yet the scripture indicates that we ought to rejoice when we see wicked people getting what they deserve. That's what Psalm 58 uh, talks about. Uh, when evangelicals uh, uh, cringe at this, I think what we have to say to them is the Lord Jesus Christ himself identifies himself uh, with Psalm uh, 58. And you know, I think Don Wildman may get the point with this new passion movie, since it's R-rated, because he's going to be forced to realize, I can't say anybody who advertises on passion ought to be, have, have marks against them. I think it's going to force people to begin to distinguish there is good violence and there's bad violence. And to shield our children from all violence, we'd have to tell them not to read the Bible. I think there is a place for fighting. I think our children need to be taught how to fight but they need to know in what circumstances to turn the other cheek and what circumstances they ought to fight. And you've got to look to the Word to know exactly when those uh, circumstances would be. But Christian pacifism does not have a leg to stand on. Uh, Hardenbrook says, Hostile charges against men's natural inclination to aggressively seek justice involve a play on feminized emotions. They are a sneaky, disarming attempt to strip males of their manhood, to make them feel guilty over something innately masculine. Real men get angry over injustice. Therefore, it is essential that today's men resist guilt for thinking, acting, and feeling the way real men think, act, and feel. And if we do not get angry over the abortion industry that is ripping little lives apart, then I think our culture has stolen some of our manhood from us. It ought to tick us off when we see uh, ungodliness uh, in, in our nation. And so I ask, do you, like Job, have a desire to see the teeth that the lions kicked in? Do you have a desire to see uh, Satan's cause being thrown down and righteousness being exalted? And by the way, I should point out, even the, taking all these rabbit trails, but even in the pro-life movement, uh, the people who are pursuing after justice, it's a feminine sort of justice, and many times they abominate the biblical cause of justice when it comes to pro-life issues. And I, I just challenge you, ask almost anybody that's involved in the pro-life movement whether we ought to be pressing charges uh, for murder and capital penalty against mothers and fathers and doctors who engage in abortion. They're so focused on the mercy side, which we'll look at in a moment, but they're so focused on the mercy side, they don't even believe in capital punishment, many of them. And for them, that's just an unthinkable thing. We've got to be nice, we've got to be kind to these women, we've got to be open uh, with the, the men who are forcing their, 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 their wives and try to convince them. And the scripture indicates, no, we ought to... We ought to have a passion to see justice raised up and be praying against such people. And I think many of these men have been injected with the wrong hormone. Uh, they aren't acting like men. Now, on another front, if you're not angry at the way that our state and our federal government has been trampling upon rights, 
you ought to be angry, men. You ought to be doing something about this because de facto you are leaders in your society. <clears throat> and uh, it's one of the reasons I'm very grateful a number of you guys are wanting to be part of this uh, Constitution class to study what the America ought to look like and uh, see if you can make any difference in society uh, with the facts that you receive. In fact, two of the books that Rodney's uh, going to be having the, the parent and, and youth table talk uh, on are kind of a humorous uh, attempt to correct some of this kind of thing. They may be going to the extreme on the other side, but hey, we need a little bit of extreme uh, on that side to, 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 to compensate. So we have to have an informed justice, secondly, a manly justice, thirdly, a justice that rescues, that has action, that's, that's doing it for the sake of mercy. Look at verse 17. Again, he says, I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. This is the balance of what we're talking about. It's a justice that's looking for mercy. It's not mercy as a replacement for justice. The two have to go hand in hand. So he is, he is breaking the fangs of the wicked in order to pluck the victim from his teeth. Now, he was not a violent man. He didn't enjoy violence for the sake of violence. Um, he, he, he was motivated by, by mercy. And some of the games that uh, our youth play, um, I, I don't like because it's gratuitous violence. It's just how many people can we kill for no purpose? No purpose other than just blow people away. Some of the models for justice that you see in the movie industry are just make my day. I, I, I'm just longing to blow somebody away. It's not for the purpose of rescuing somebody from the clutches of that lion. On the other hand, there are some games that I think are not gratuitous. Uh, they do have killing in them, but it's for a good cause, and I think it's a good training uh, for the children. So I think we need to distinguish. What are the goals? And in our modern society, we've got many people who have gone to the side of only mercy, and they coddle criminals, and in the process, they give no justice to the victims. <clears throat> And let me give you another side note that many Christians, I think, have copped out on justice. They say they're pursuing justice, but because they've got a socialistic agenda, it's the very opposite of justice. In our Mercy Ministries class, we've shown how a modern welfare state and all of the so-called mercy ministries of the state are actually counterproductive. They do exactly the opposite of what they were intended to do. Ronald Sider speaks of social justice. It's not the biblical model. Modern liberals are not real men because they're seeking to use your money, you know, by taxes. They're seeking to legislate and talk about mercy, but they're not doing the mercy themselves. Job was in the trenches actually engaging in mercy ministry. He was using his own money, his own time, and his own efforts. And even though he was a civil magistrate, there's not one shred of evidence he ever used tax money in order to feed the poor. He fed the poor individually. In fact, I love the story that um, <clears throat> John Eidsmo gave, and I, I probably can't get it exactly right. Uh, but John Eidsmo told a story about Davy Crockett uh, coming up to this farmer and asking him if he would vote for him again. And this farmer said, I voted for you before, but I will never vote for you again. And Davy Crockett was kind of taken aback, and he said, why? He said, it was because of that vote you took on such and such a day. And he told him about the vote, and was it a vote to, for a widow, David? Okay.
Right. Good. Okay, victims of a fire that he was doing. And, and so he was kind of taken aback. He says, it's a good cause. These people were in need. And he pointed out, as David said, that it was not constitutional. You're taking from the public purse, and it's not for the general welfare. It's for the individual welfare of those per people who had the, uh, their, the, their, their houses burned down. He was convinced. He repented, and he said, look, if you call a meeting of all of the farmers out there, I will publicly tell them that I have done wrong. I will repent and say, you don't have to vote for me again. But if I get into office, I will no longer work like this. And he was true to his word. The next time a vote like that came up in Congress, and maybe it was the second one, was for a pension of a widow. Uh, he, he gave them this story that he had gone through, and he said, we ought not to do this. He said, we have enough money in this house, if you're so all fired concerned about her pension, to pass a hat. I'm going to put this much money in. He passed the hat, and he was the only one who did it. Okay, and again, it shows it's very easy to spend somebody else's money, but that's not mercy. True mercy is spending your own money, your own time, your own efforts, and being involved. And that's why I say socialism is a counterfeit. It is not true biblical mercy. And don't let anybody tell you that this is social justice. It is the very opposite of justice. It is an injustice that people engage in. And so we've got to make sure that we are following the model here that, 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 uh, that is set in Job. If you look at verse uh, 13, you see that uh, here's a man in the hospital who's dying, and he's right there to help him. The blessing of the perishing man came upon me. He was there when the widow needed help. Same verse says, I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Okay, he was not a socialist. He was personally involved. Verse 12 and 16, orphans enjoyed being around him. Verse 15, when there was a blind man crossing the street, he helped him out when the lame needed a ride. He gave him one. And so it was justice for the sake of mercy. So we see that even in the definition of justice, that second element of mercy is essential. Many people polarize the two as if they're opposites. They are not. You just need to make sure you're giving mercy to the right person. And uh, then justice will be done. And so I ask you men this morning, are you justice seekers? And are you merciful to the right people? If you are not tender and merciful with your wives, how in the world can you expect to show mercy to widows? If you are not tender and merciful with your children, how in the world can you expect to be merciful and show God's justice to orphans? We need to be applying this to our own families and looking, uh, looking in our, uh, our own family. A real man doesn't just show mercy when there's something in it for himself. He's a model in his community of what it means to be a justice seeker and a person of mercy. And we need more men and women and children who can be models so that when people come, they've been converted and they don't have any of this to see, they can see a model of a man and of a woman and of children who are living as those people ought to be. And so women, lift up your man and children, lift up your dads. Uh, try to promote uh, this, this kind of a model in our church. The fifth thing that is described here is that he was a servant king. Another way of saying it is he had dominion through service. Uh, or to use the language of Christ, he was a leader who was willing to wash the feet of his disciples. Job achieved leadership through servanthood, and there's no question about the fact that he was indeed the boss. He was the, uh, the leader, and uh, no dispute about that. Just as a side note, 
Uh, I read an essay last month by James Jordan. It was an essay on genealogy. I was trying to figure out something that was a little confusing to me. And for the first time, um, I understood the connection of Job to the rest of the Bible. He showed the genealogy. I mean, just as clear as could be. And then I looked at some other commentaries. I just never read any commentaries on that particular point. But uh, we know the connection and the genealogy of Job. He was an Edomite king. And these other counselors were civil counselors. They were noblemen who were also Edomites who were after Job's job. They wanted him to step down. Well, when you look at it from that perspective, it gives a whole new twist to the complaints that Job was bringing against these men. These men were insubordinate. They were trying to take something that did not belong to them. And uh, it, it makes sense as well of what God said at the end of the book to Eliphaz, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Okay, so he was responding to insubordination, a grab for his job. It's no wonder he was reacting the way that he was. Anyway, verse 7 describes him as a judge. Verse 8 says, The young men saw me and hid, and the aged arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking, put their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. He was a leader of leaders. And I should mention that this concept of standing before those who are in authority is something we still need to do. We need to teach this to our kids, ways of honoring those who come in. Now, if somebody comes in and wants to shake the hands of your kids, don't let them sit there on the, on the chair and shake their hands. Have them get up and stand. In the courtrooms, we still have that. You have to stand when the judge arises. Or like it says there, they put their hand on their mouth. Now, if that's true of a nobleman who was inferior to Job, and he did not interrupt. He put his hand on his mouth. We need to make sure that our children do not interrupt. You know, adults, they do not interrupt conversations. Teach our children to respect those who, who are in authority. And when you're doing that, you're not just solving a problem right now. You're, you're creating a heart attitude that is going to stand them in good stead for many years to come. Okay, so... That's aside. That's not what I was going to deal with here. What I wanted to deal with here is um, that his leadership was not that of a tyrant or a bully. But it's a good rabbit trail. Follow through on that because it's in the Scripture. Uh, verse 25, um, he says, I chose, for them, I chose the way for them and sat as chief. So there's the leadership that he's engaging in. But he, he, he gives two word pictures to show what kind of leadership that is. First word picture so I dwelt as a king in an army, second word picture, as one who comforts mourners. So he wasn't a king who tells his army, I want you to go off and battle there, and he's lounging, watching TV in his palace. No, he's out there on the field, he's getting his hands dirty, he's engaging in the kinds of dangers that they're following through. Now, it doesn't mean he can't ever send somebody off, and he's going to be off in a different direction. But he is the kind of leader where manual labor is not beneath his dignity. He's the kind of leader that gets his hands dirty, who's involved with those that he is leading. The second image was of a person who comforts mourners. And he does it by personal involvement, not just by... Again, what kind of a leadership do you men show in your families? Is it a servant leadership? Uh, the kind of leadership that many women rebel against is a leadership that is very chauvinistic, and it's a leadership that has no servanthood at all. It is self-seeking. 
Now, that does not excuse their rebellion. Uh, these people rebelled against him even when he was showing servanthood. And so, you know, it doesn't always take away rebellion. But the point is, we men need to examine our lives and ask, am I leading in the way that Jesus Christ led? There's times to be tough and there's times uh, to, to be washing, <clears throat> washing feet. And if we begin to get our images for what a leader is from the popular culture, we're going to suck in all kinds of erroneous concepts. John Wayne was not a biblical leader, as much as I like John Wayne movies. He was not a, a, a biblical... I mean, he had pride, he had an ego. Uh, you can think of the movie, uh, she wore a um, yellow ribbon. And it just irritates me. Every time I see that movie, he keeps coming up with this phrase, never apologize, mister, it's a sign of weakness. Well, I say, no, an apology, a true apology, is a sign of strength. It's a sign that your heart is right with God. And uh, he tips his hat to God, whereas, uh, you know, Job was a person who was very intimate with God. And there's all kinds of models of manhood that are vying for our attention out there. There's the macho maniac, you know, who's insensitive to women and children. There's the super jock who, who thinks the only way he's going to get respect is if he's an athlete and if he's got a body, you know, that really uh, looks, uh, looks good. Or there's the uh, financial tycoon feels the only way he's going to gain respect is if he's earning enough money that other people will say, yes, this person's a success. He's, a, he's achieved something. And... Um, there, there's, there's many different models that are out there. There's the gender blender who's basically committed suicide, Harry Carey, <laughs> to his manhood. And I want you men to be models for Omaha, models of what it means to be strong families in Christ Jesus. The kind of rule that many women rebel against, again, uh, they associate it with patriarchy. It actually has nothing to do with patriarchy. Ironically, it flows out of feminism. It's the very opposite of what godly patriarchy is about. And um, it, it's the result of rejecting God's plan, and so it's no wonder that it's painful. Hardenbrook says, being the kind of fathers men are supposed to be means that they must return to patriarchy. Therefore, men should reject the historically inaccurate assertion so naively believed by Americans of both sexes that patriarchal families were oppressed families in which women and children suffered at the cruel hands of despotic men. An objective look at the period of American history where patriarchal families were the norm tells just the opposite story. It plainly demonstrates that spouses and children felt far less oppressed and far more content than their modern counterparts. And there are exceptions, of course, but it's our age of feminism that has produced so many irresponsible husbands and so much spousal abuse. It's our age of feminism that has destroyed that. And so... Whether we're talking about our family or whether we're talking about our involvement in, in culture, we've got to learn what it means. And again, the Constitution class can help us in terms of leadership uh, elsewhere. Point six, Job was a prophet. We need to be prophets to our families. We need to be prophets to our culture. Uh, another way of saying this is we need to be shepherds and pastors of our families, speaking God's word into into. In, 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 into the needs of the family. Look at verses 21 through 23. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again, and my speech settled on them as dew. They waited for me as for the rain. They opened their mouth wide as for the spring rain. Okay, he was one who had God's Word ready to minister into the lives of other people. When was the last time 
your family asked you for advice, men. Sometimes the problem is that they don't want wisdom. They don't want to know what's true. But if we are people who are ready with an answer and we're giving it in a way that has a servant's heart and shows concern for those people, then I think it's going to be something that is going to be tremendously blessed uh, where people will, uh, our, our wives and our children will look up to us. And so that means we need to read. We have to read, read, read continually uh, so that we are going to be a well of wisdom. And if you don't know how to read, then you need to listen to tapes. Learn to read first. You can be taught phonics. There's plenty of people here who can teach you phonics, right? But um, you can listen to tapes in the meantime. And there's all kinds of great conferences in which you can learn. In fact, don't just read the books that deal with manhood issues. Deal with the books that, 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 that talk about women and their needs and what they're going through. Because how can you wash your wives with the water of the word as the scripture commands us to do if you don't know the struggles that they're going through, if you don't know how to meet their needs? So we need, to, we need to read, we need to understand what the managers underneath us, you know, are going through and be able to minister uh, in their lives. Uh, one of my uh, life verses is 1 Chronicles 12, 32. It occurs right smack dab in the middle of genealogy, which shows how weird I am, but uh, genealogies are just full of wonderful truths. But anyway, in there it says, "...the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do." They were just ordinary men, but they were studying what was wrong with Israel and what God's solutions would be. And they had a ready answer to know what Israel ought to do. And I want us to be men who understand the times in America, who study the Constitution, who study the problems in the newspaper, but mo most of all, who study the Word of God so that we know what Israel ought to do. And we know what our families ought to do. And then finally, Job had learned to enjoy life and enjoyed bringing joy to others. Verses 18 through 20 uh, talk of satisfaction and joy in life that Job had despite an incredibly busy schedule. If you're too busy to have fun, you're probably too busy, okay? <laughs> um, let me just read that for you. Then I said, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters and the dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is fresh within me and my bow is renewed in my hand." This is incredible imagery of a person who had learned to have satisfaction in life, had learned to enjoy the good things uh, of life, but he did it all because of his relationship to God, which brings us full circle all the way back to point one. If you're not walking quorum Deo, if you don't have a, an intimacy with God, you're going to have a much harder time enjoying life, and Solomon learned that because Solomon was a person who had it all, and yet it says he hated life, why? He was in a backslidden condition. The only way we can enjoy life to the fullest is when we're enjoying God to the fullest. And that's why the Catechism says that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so we see here, verse 19, uses the imagery of a tree finding never-ending refreshment from the water. Uh, the next uh, part of the verse talks about the dew coming down upon his branch. You know, there's refreshment there. Uh, during times like verse 17, when he's discouraged over the injustice in the earth, boy, he goes to the Lord to get refreshed. He knows how to do that. Uh, during times when he is sucked dry, verses 12 through 16, let me tell you, anybody who's involved in mercy ministries knows you can get sucked dry so easy. You've got to be able to get refreshed from God's fountain of life or you're going to shrivel up and hate life. 
You've got to constantly learn how to enjoy life. And Job was able to do that. He hung on to God even during the toughest times. He says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I will trust him. And so I urge you, uh, fathers, to seek God as your ultimate source of joy. First six points here are our duty. The last point is our privilege of enjoying uh, the Lord. And um, don't feel guilty when you have fun together as a family and your work is not all done. Okay, Kathy? Don't feel guilty when you say, we need to have some fun. We've had a real stressful last two, three weeks. We're going to have some fun. And people say, well, the work's not all done. If I had to wait until my work was all done before I had fun, I would never have fun. And you guys, you probably realize there's never an end to the work that is out there. And so you've got to fit fun in. Go out for a dinner. You know, go out for a date. Go on a vacation. Uh, Take some time to spend with your family. (coughs) Because God did not put us here all of our lives just to sacrifice He put us here in our lives. Yes, there are sacrifices we make, but to enjoy God and to enjoy the good things of life. And Solomon said that there is nothing better than to, well, I can't even quote it, but he said, enjoying your wife, enjoying wine, enjoying food, enjoying these good things under heaven. When he talks about under the sun, it's all vanity. When he talks about under heaven, in other words, quorum deo, it's all, there, there's a purpose for everything and you can enjoy everything in life. And so that's my, my ending uh, croak to you guys. Uh, <laughs> make sure that you don't go through this sermon and say, oh, wow, a whole pile more duties. No, if you're focusing at it through God, you empty out the jar of some things, you put these rocks in, you're going to be able to enjoy life. And may each one of you do so. Amen. Father God, I thank you for your word. And I pray that we would lay hold of it and make whatever changes in our lives that we need to. And in these coming weeks, as we look at the, the wonderful place of children, the place of women in our lives and in the church, I pray, Father, that our hearts would be encouraged and uh, our hearts would also be strengthened and redirected to you. We bless you, Father, for the privilege of serving you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat>